0: When I was a kid in the 70s, I lived in Worcester, Massachusetts, and we didn't have video games or big Marvel movies. So if you were gonna idolize someone, you pretty much had two choices. You had the Fonz or Carly Yastrzemski, the left fielder for the Red Sox. Then I moved outside Philadelphia, and it was kind of the same thing, only it was the band Kiss or Mike Schmidt. But then, towards the end of the 70s, Basketball burst onto the scene and just instantly blew our minds. We had Dr. J playing for the Sixers, and then in the blink of an eye, there was Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. This felt like it was more than just a new sport, but a whole new culture. The short shorts, the afros, the flashy uniforms, the cheesy graphics on TV. Suddenly, all we could do was watch basketball. And a lot of other things were changing as well. The country just felt different. People were talking about making a lot of money in sports cars, and there was this kind of flag-waving American thing going on. Movies like Top Gun, Red Dawn, Rambo. My friends and I made fun of all that stuff, and a lot of the music was really terrible. The clothes were ugly, but it definitely felt new and big. And in the middle of it, for me and my friends, it was all about the NBA. Michael on the
1: drive, across the lane, turnaround shot, got it, 63.
0: I remember watching Michael Jordan drop 63 on the Celtics in the playoffs. I'll never forget Dr. J in the 1980 championship series, that up and under move. And I swear to God, when we saw it, it looked like he was walking on the air. My friends and I would watch this stuff over and over. But I also remember very vividly the heartbreak of hearing how Len Bias had died of a cocaine overdose right after being drafted by the Celtics.
1: Once again, 22-year-old Len Bias, star forward from the University of Maryland basketball team, is now dead.
0: I remember hearing how Benji Wilson out of Chicago had been tragically gunned down. Instead, they shot him, and today Ben Wilson died. Many in Chicago are grieving. And being shocked that Drazen Petrovic, who had seemingly unlimited range, Steph Curry before Steph Curry, had died in his prime.
2: Petrovic was killed late yesterday when his car slammed into a truck near Munich, Germany in heavy rain. Drazen Petrovic was 28.
0: There are many more. Terry Furlow, Ricky Berry, Hank Gathers, Bobby Phils, and on and on. All these tragic deaths. So why did all these rising talents die in that same time period? I realized after we did some digging that there really wasn't one smoking gun. We all love stories with evidence and one clear perpetrator. Look at the 300 different true crime podcasts out there. But the truth is our lives aren't usually determined by one other person or a conspiracy or some magical singular event. We're usually pushed, shaped, and sometimes even crushed by big forces, collisions, accidents, and changes. And to some degree, that's what happened to the NBA in the 80s and 90s, for better and sometimes for worse. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The 80s saw massive changes in politics, media, and even in the story of how Americans see themselves. And this helped create a new kind of superstar in the NBA, even as the same communities these stars came from were being left behind by a nation becoming more and more obsessed with extreme wealth. It's a decade that leads very directly to where we are right now in America, both for our country and for the NBA. It was the 1980s, I actually lived through it, and it sucked, except for the basketball. I'm Adam McKay, and this is a new series from Hyper Object Industries and Three Uncanny Four. This is Death at the Wing. Each episode will look at one player, one tragedy, and the big forces at play behind that tragedy. Tonight's episode, we set the stage for how basketball started to change, and America did too. The NBA, the ABA, television, and Reagan. This is episode one, The Invisible Revolution.
3: Inside. Look how high above him he is.
0: Yesterday, he was in the wrong place at the wrong
3: time.
1: Watch him just
0: taking
3: his time. Now he's
1: seen Early this morning, in this dormitory here on the hey, Rock the baby to sleep
4: and slam dunk. New York's Madison
6: Square Garden, a City College Quintet, faces five fast and fancy web feet from the University of Oregon. It's the opening contest of an intersectional doubleheader.
0: To understand just how much the NBA changed in the 80s, it helps to think about what pro-basketball used to be. And if you need someone to walk you through the changes of basketball over the last century, it's hard to beat the logo. Hello, everyone. I'm
3: Jerry West. My life has led me from West Virginia to Los Angeles because of a talent
0: that I had. Jerry West's silhouette mid-dribble has lived as the logo of the league for the past 50 years. Seriously, the little basketball dribbling guy who's the logo of the NBA, that's Jerry West.
3: From there, I coached the Lakers for three years
0: and was involved with them for Oh, my goodness. It seemed like a lifetime. Jerry West is in his 80s now, and for most of those years, he's been at the center of basketball. He grew up in Sheelan, West Virginia, population 778. And in the 50s, even as he was becoming a local legend, basketball was still just a regional sport.
3: Well, you know, at that time, Adam, the recruiting process, if you played in the East, very few People West of the Mississippi would, would bother to recruit you. Basketball wasn't like baseball
0: or football or, frankly, ice hockey. West eventually made it through college and into the NBA in the era of the big man. Jerry West was one of the few superstars who was under 6'10".
1: Basketball, a game of giants.
3: George Mikan was the first big guy.
1: And there's number 99, George Mikan, one of the greatest. He set most of the game's scoring records.
3: Just that presence alone changed the way the game was played at that
0: point in time. George Mike, he was the league's first superstar. 6'10", 250 pounds, with big thick round glasses like Harry Potter. He dropped lumbering hook shot after lumbering hook shot. Made sense, right? If you're taller, you're closer to the rim. Get the ball to that guy. But honestly, it wasn't the most exciting style of basketball to
4: watch. A real highlight in my estimation
0: is a nice chest pass or a bounce pass. Kids in driveways don't dream of standing a foot away from the hoop and laying it in over people. Except for me. I'm 6'5", pretty tall. Pretty much my only glory moments in basketball involve me lumbering to the hoop and laying it in over short people. But fans don't spend hundreds of dollars to watch tall guys move like chess pieces on a basketball court.
3: When I first came to Los Angeles, the Dodgers were selling out the Coliseum and the Rams were selling 100,000 seats every game. The Lakers were lucky to get, you know, 4,000 people. And their salaries showed it. You couldn't survive on what we made. Um, I think I was a second player in the draft and I think in first year I made $16,500. And I did not even know I was drafted till the next morning.
5: I'm old, but I'm not old enough to have been alive in the fifties. But but Coos used to tell me, Bob Coosey told me that, you know, in the off season
0: he was a um he was an auto school driver. Here's legendary sports writer Jackie McMullen. She's one of the authors of basketball, a love story. And so that's very different. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Bob Coosey was a driving yeah. instructor, one of the greatest point guards ever.
5: Yeah. I think Tommy Heinsohn told me once he was a waiter, but he, he was bad at it because he smoked and he kept going for a smoke break and the customers complained about the smoke on his breath. So he had to quit that job.
3: Players, you know, they called us professionals. We made little or nothing. And uh, it was just
0: people who really liked to compete. For much of the 60s and 70s, that was the state of professional basketball in America. But that was all about to change. The NBA was about to have a big problem on its hands. It was the ABA, a new style of basketball, the kind of game that was reviving interest around the country. The American Basketball Association was founded in 1967 with teams like the Anaheim Amigos, the Kentucky Colonels, the Houston Mavericks, the Tulsa Grave Robbers. All right, there was no Tulsa Grave Robbers, but the other ones were real. Basically, the ABA was a startup a renegade league trying to take on the NBA's shaky monopoly on pro basketball. The plan was simple. Go to markets that didn't have existing teams and focus on stars. You know, be plucky. But there was a moment early on in 1969 where the ABA could have changed the entire course of basketball history by landing the greatest big man of a generation.
5: If you wanted to hit the NBA where it hurts, you, you signed the greatest player in the game who was graduating from UCLA, high-profile player, 7-footer. Beads underneath Alcindor. And two more for the
3: big
4: guy. That gives him 27 27- When
0: Lou Alcindor was coming out of UCLA, he was the most important player of that era. A star on the court and an emerging voice for African-Americans off of it. He converted to Islam while in college. A couple years later, Alcindor would change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
5: He was one of those can't-miss, like LeBron. And so the ABA is like, okay, let's just let's use everything we have to our advantage.
0: The seven-footer who would go on to win six titles, six MVP awards, the man who would go on to score more points than anyone else in the history of professional basketball, and the ABA had a shot at him.
5: We'll sell the, the way we're going to play the game, but we're also going to tell him, hey, we're going to pay you a ton of money. And we're going to let you choose whatever team you want to play for. We're, we're not even going to worry about a draft and all that. Because Milwaukee had the number one pick, and they were, they were surmising that maybe Lou Cinder didn't want to play in Milwaukee.
0: He'd be allowed to play in his hometown of New York for the ABA's Nets, a city with a large Muslim community. And he'd be closer to his family. And this is how the ABA blew it.
5: George Mikan was the commissioner of the ABA at the time.
0: The same George Mikan from the 1950s, Mr. Basketball was brought in to give the league the face of credibility by getting Lou Alcinder.
5: So the idea was they're like, OK, we're going to we're going to pay him a million dollars. We're going to give him a million dollars.
0: The ABA would offer alcinder a four year, one million dollar contract, an unheard of sum for that time. And on top of that, Mikan would hand over another one million dollar check on the spot to show Cinder that they were serious.
5: And you know, they got one of those big checks, right? The million dollar checks. And this is where the story gets a little murky.
0: So they have their meeting at a hotel in New York City. And George Mike.
5: Like, he just forgot to bring the check in this meeting with Cinder. Mikan would insist later on, no, no, I was saving that for, you know, when we closed the deal.
0: Like we said, it's a little murky. Maybe he forgot his Harry Potter glasses?
5: They just didn't have their, you know, they weren't organized. They were a little disjointed. And, you know, the million-dollar check wasn't there. And I think Elson was like, yeah, this, this isn't a viable. This is Mickey Mouse. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the short thing. And so he signed with uh, the Bucs.
0: Basketball's next great superstar would head to the NBA in eternal basketball glory.
5: Now, if he had signed with the ABA, who knows?
0: As for the ABA, well, they had to carry on. And for all his talent, Kareem was a big man—the kind of guy that you feed over and over down low. So, without Kareem, still looking for an edge, the ABA had no choice but to double down on their own brand: part basketball, part entertainment, all fun. And it all took place on one spot—the
2: game.
3: Here's a shot, Julius. He, he scores!
0: scores! We'll get into that right after this break.
2: And the next win, 120.
1: To I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment.
0: The wing is the magical place on the basketball court, a little over 20 feet away from the hoop, about as far away as you can be on the court from the low post where the NBA's old stars that's not.
5: That's not how the ABA was playing the game. They weren't all getting down on the post and
0: doing turnaround jump shots from six feet away. A different type of basketball, led by a different type of star. The ABA looked for players who just needed the ball in their hands and a little bit of space on the court to get creative. They weren't making a lot of money, but,
5: you know, they were playing run-and-gun basketball and the players liked it, and the fans liked it.
0: The wing became the place for one-on-one basketball. You just worried about you and the person in front of you. You crossed them over, you spun, you hesitated, head faked, and most of all, you made highlights that were perfect for TV.
3: Oh, Thompson! That's 23 for Thompson, and that's that famed and fabled alley-oop pass.
0: The ABA would throw all sorts of other changes into the game. The ABA added a three-point line out on the wing. The NBA just thought that was a gimmick. Extra points? Why? Who cares? That's not fundamentally sound. Tater uncorks it for three! Three Three-point play for Brian Tater. The rule change would go on to open up the game for a generation of long-range snipers. And it would spread the floor for the wings to get even more creative in the open court. The ABA was turning the regimented team game of the old
4: NBA into a creative experience. There's sort of a stylistic difference between the kind of basketball you're seeing in the NBA and the kind of basketball you're seeing in the uh, ABA. That's USC professor Todd Boyd.
0: If you're up for a chat about pop culture, basketball, the lasting legacy of socioeconomic policy throughout American history, Todd Boyd is your guy
4: the NBA was more traditional, and the ABA was much more comfortable embracing streetball and urban culture. Um, What starts to happen as the late 70s transitions into the 80s, a, a group of people who are identified as stars expands. It's not just one guy here, one guy there. And I think basketball is especially suited for this. If You're watching the NFL, you're looking at guys whose faces are hidden behind helmets. You can't see their faces. Um, The game of baseball is increasingly disconnected from Black culture overall. And I was a big baseball guy up to the 80s, so I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying, as the culture changed, there's nothing cool about the game of baseball. The ABA put its spotlight on characters,
0: celebrities, nicknames. Julius Irving wasn't Julius Irving. He was the doctor with a huge afro and a pair of high-top Converse. You'd be watching a game and suddenly everything would stop, and you'd see the doctor just gliding through the air like a swan and finishing off with a rim-rattling dunk.
3: And that sends everyone, really! Julius Irving.
0: The ABA would even hold basketball's first dunk contest, the ultimate practice and personal expression when it came to sports.
4: And then after that, increasingly the game of basketball is seen as a sport where uh, black players are dominant. At the time,
0: college basketball had actually banned dunking in the name of preserving the game's traditional style of play. If that sounds kind of racist, that's because it probably was. The only guys dunking college ball tended to be black players. The ABA, meanwhile, let their players play the way they wanted, with style and expression. But there was a big problem. As a business, the ABA didn't exactly have their act together. They had seven commissioners in nine years, and they were constantly throwing Hail Marys, trying different gimmicks to try and get the league to work. The ABA would do nights like halter top night or have a bear, an actual bear, wrestle a human during halftime. The Pittsburgh Condors, which is not a made-up name, actually held John Brisker Intimidation Night, where they sold a poster of their nastiest player holding a pair of guns. John Brisker, by the way, left basketball, possibly went to Uganda, got caught up in the Civil War there, and was never heard from again. Great story. We're not doing it. That's a freebie for anyone out there. I would listen to that podcast. anyway the ABA.
5: The ABA had no money and no structure. And, you know, they they had the red, white and blue ball, but they forgot for their opening night that they needed the red, white and blue ball and they didn't have one. So they painted it and the paint was getting on the player's I mean, they were a disorganized group, but all the NBA guys kept looking over at the ABA and saying, they're having more fun than we are.
0: The ABA was cool, but struggling financially. The NBA was just the opposite. It was gaining a foothold, but it just couldn't figure out how to create authentic coolness. And the NBA started to realize, okay, we got to do something about this. And so they made a big move. The NBA swooped in, snatched up four ABA franchises, and more importantly, its biggest star, the future of basketball, Dr. J. And after the merger, the three-point line, the dunks, and the style would make their way into mainstream basketball. The NBA had finally found an entertaining product to put on the court. The basketball revolution was here. Just in time for a revolution in virtually every other part of American life, including TV. This was when kids like me and my friends started really paying attention, taping games and putting up our posters when basketball became a major cultural and media force, one that reflected all the other forces that were about to come crashing down on us.
4: That's coming up after the break.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
0: If you were one of the lucky few with cable television, you had the privilege of watching a special broadcast.
3: It's 15 rounds the nearest round one.
0: Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier on HBO, The Thrilla in Manila, the first live sports transmission across the world.
1: I think it's going to be over. It's all over.
0: The fight was set by a satellite called Westar One the first that could beam a signal to cable companies across the country. And while Westar 1 may have transmitted to Ali Frazier, it had nothing on SATCOM 1, the Hall of Fame satellite that some satellite enthusiasts even call to this day the GOAT. And I'm sure there are hundreds of thousands of satellite enthusiasts listening, and you are jacked right now. SATCOM 1 launched just weeks after the fight, It would bring the first broadcasts of CNN, ESPN, Showtime, the TBS Superstation, and more. This flood of new channels all beaming down thanks to this giant hunk of metal thousands of miles away, floating in space. We had gone from having our four little pokey TV channels to suddenly having cable TV. Beyond that blue horizon is a limitless world of sports. And right now, you're standing on the edge of tomorrow, sports... 24 hours a day, seven days. And on top of it all, the VCR had suddenly become very affordable. So we were recording NBA highlights on VHS off this brand new sports cable network that would show the highlights of these NBA games.
4: I mean, I remember that vividly because nobody in my house was really watching basketball but me. So this idea that you could watch a team anywhere in the country where you picked up the Superstation on cable, that team might have had nothing to do with where you were, but it allowed you to see the rest of the NBA. This, of course, wasn't just happening
0: in sports. By the end of the decade, everything you could possibly want and a whole lot of things you didn't want were being beamed right into your living room. I remember MTV, Angel in the Centerfold video, Jay Giles Band had women in lingerie doing cartwheels down a high school hallway. I swear, it almost sent our entire neighborhood into a full scale riot. So much excitement and hormones and confusion coming off of that video. The other thing I remember too is like watching these sitcoms that you had no interest in just because they were on. Like, I think I watched three full seasons of Rhoda. It's a story about a single woman who lived in New York City. She had a relationship with this guy, Joe, a drunk doorman. And suddenly it was like every episode, I couldn't wait to see what was happening with Rhoda. Or they used to show the Braves games on the Superstation all the time. And I became a huge fan of, like, Dale Murphy. Suddenly I was, like, talking about Dale Murphy in my life. Cable news suddenly came out with the 24-hour news cycle. There was news Always. It seemed like overnight, TV became the defining feature in American life, with the power to push and pull and shape public opinion. The rich and powerful, of course, knew this. Their power would be determined by how well they could play this new media landscape. And fortunately for them, at least, they had the perfect star ready and packaged as their salesman.
6: Have you ever noticed that in every community there are some people whose looks and personalities set them apart from others?
0: They stand out in a crowd. You never forget them. One Ronald Wilson Reagan, the cowboy president, sells itself.
2: Reagan was basically the front man. He was the entertainer, and he was the guy who could give the speeches with conviction, and he was
0: likable. Jane Mayer from The New Yorker has cataloged the career of Ronald Reagan and the rise of the right wing. Turned out that big money in America had finally figured out that what Americans really wanted in their living room, more than anything, was a good charismatic pitch for a product. So you see how modern light conditioning
1: helps us have a more livable house.
2: You haven't forgotten the surprise, have you?
0: No, ma'am.
2: I was the White House correspondent, and there were literally cue cards that gave you his talking points, and they, they had his, his lines written down you know, word for word. It was just for a photo opportunity, but it told him what to say. It also had his jokes written out for him, and they would put marks on the floor showing where he should stand, um, just as you would for a movie actor.
0: They had learned the lessons from the Kennedy-Nixon debate back in the early 60s that it cost Nixon the election. They knew that TV was key to maintaining power.
6: You see, Ronald Reagan was, first of all, a great salesperson, Robert Reich is a former Secretary
0: of Labor under Bill Clinton.
6: But he also was riding a wave that started in the 1970s, started really under Carter, of anti-government
0: sentiment. America wasn't exactly feeling great during the era of Jimmy Carter. That's when the hangover from Watergate and the Vietnam War had finally hit. Not to mention we had also learned that basically Saudi Arabia and the oil countries had us on a leash
6: an economy that was stuck with oil crisis and stagflation, uh, a deep recession in the last years of the Carter administration.
0: Reagan had been practicing for the Star Turn for decades. The former actor from Hollywood Westerns began his political awakening in the 40s and 50s. Believe it or not, his first hero was actually FDR. But Reagan really burst onto the scene in 1964, when Barry Goldwater, a very extreme right-wing candidate for president, hired Reagan to give a nationally televised speech on his behalf. An anti-communist infomercial, really. Goldwater got creamed in that election, but Reagan had found his voice. He paired his Cold War rhetoric with his experience as governor of California, and by 1980, it was all coming together.
2: So I see the Reagan revolution really as a reactionary movement. Um, It was kind of a snapback against the 1960s and the 70s in America, where there was the anti-war movement, black power, women's rights, consumer movement, the environmental movement. All of those movements were saying that there was a public interest in social policy being fairer. And those movements were very threatening to the old order.
0: Reagan had kicked off his 1980 campaign in the Deep South with a speech invoking states' rights, an anti-civil rights dog whistle that everyone who needed to hear heard. But the heart of his message was simple. We're talking with uh, former Governor Reagan and... The- and tailor-made for soaring speeches or chummy sit-downs like this one with Johnny Carson. And they all seem to have different answers as to what is going wrong in the country. So everybody is confused. How how, how do you see the thing? How are we gonna get out of this? The man who was about to be tossed the keys to the entire government laid all the problems in one place, the government. Well, uh, Johnny, I think that one of the things is that people keep looking to government for the answer and government's the problem.
2: Reagan portrayed government as the problem and business as the solution. And before that, everybody had pretty much accepted the idea that government was good and government helped America um, and that big government was solving big problems for everybody's
0: benefit. And the movie star president played the part, demonizing the poor and the so-called welfare state. Reagan took a degree
6: of anger that people had uh, in the working class and just began to shift that anger toward minorities, black people and Latinos. Remember Reagan was the one who talked first uh, about welfare, welfare being a, a kind of a sickness, a welfare dependency.
0: Meanwhile, Reaganomics would lead to a massive tax cut for the top one percent, the biggest our country had ever seen, deregulation for industries like big banking and other companies that polluted and a total explosion of wealth for the top earners in the country. And all of this was done in the name of efficiency and cutting red tape and, of course, freedom. Reagan's hero FDR had brought us the New Deal. Now Reagan was taking us back to the old deal. The one where the rich get richer and the rest of us get a bootstrap to pull ourselves up by. There's very little that government can do as efficiently and as economically as the people can do themselves. And if government would shut the doors and sneak away for about three weeks, we'd never miss them. And you know what? People ate it up. My friends and I were going on and on about hip-hop and basketball and all the adults in our lives. Even the Democrats, even some of the Democrats. That's the way they were talking about Reagan. They were excited. Life was moving fast. America was rolling up the sleeves of its sports coat and starting to kick some butt. There were rich people everywhere, at least on TV and in the movies. There were rich people. At the time, there wasn't much of a
6: backlash. You would think that there would be kind of a populist movement saying, wait a minute, don't do that. No one stopped to ask the hard question, at what cost? How can you reward the rich and the big corporations and, and cut social services? And, I mean, aren't you, aren't you just taking us back to the Stone Ages? He
0: was. And 40 years later, in a lot of ways, we're still living in it. Gun violence, drug laws, prisons, imperialism, depression, protest... Over the course of this series, we're going to look at the basketball stars who passed away in the 80s and the early 90s, and how each one connects and intersects with a time where the U.S. doubled down on old school American values, greed, violence, and racism. Whether you were a wing player from the Philadelphia 76ers or a lobbyist in a suit in Washington, D.C., or just a working class person watching television from home, All of us were gonna be changed by the 1980s. That's this season on Death at the Wing. Death at the Wing is a hyperobject and three uncanny four production. I'm your host and executive producer, Adam McKay. Jody Avergan is our executive producer and story editor. Raghu Manavalan is our senior producer. Brian Steele is our producer. We got booking help from Catherine Shoemaker. Our assistant producer is Shane McKeon. Archival research from Jason Helig. Fact-checking from Will Tavlin. We got legal help from Allison Sherry. Nuna Sharafeddine is our production manager. Very special thanks to Stacey Robert Steele. This show is mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Music composition by Beacon Street. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson at Hyperobject and Laura Mayer at Three Uncanny Four. If you like this series, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show. And make sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us and it helps others discover the show. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments about this show, send us an email. We'll be doing a bonus episode at the end of the series, talking about more stories and answering your questions. Our email address is D-A-T-W at HyperObjectIndustries.com. That's D-A-T-W for Death at the Wing at HyperObjectIndustries, all one word, dot com. You can also find me on Twitter at Ghost Panther or you can reach us by sending a letter through the estate of George Mikan. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death at the Wing.